Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Seth Partnow is here. I am I am pumped. Seth is my new colleague at The Athletic. Uh, been a good friend of mine for a little while. I think, I don't know, Seth, were you on Were you on the podcast before uh, you made the move to the Bucks? I can't remember. I believe I was on a couple times, but that's that's ancient history now. I mean, it's, you know, three years ago. So much has happened. Yeah, like you coming to join me at The Athletic. So I'm super excited exactly. about that. Uh, it's going to be great. So, uh, Seth, so let's just like kind of jump in. So for people who are unfamiliar with you, what is it exactly that, uh, that you did both in terms of title and in terms of what you actually did while working for the Milwaukee Bikes? I, I I just had office space flashbacks. What is it you say you do here? Uh, Um, (laughs) so, uh, I guess starting now with the athletic, uh, I, I get, uh, Prior to working for the Bucks, I, among other things, uh, ran a website called the Nylon Calculus, which still exists, still a very good website, where we uh, we explored basketball, the NBA most specifically, but basketball in general, uh, through the lens of stats and analytics. And kind of from doing that, I got the opportunity to, uh, I, I kind of started to get contacted by a, a few different teams, and, and eventually a, a position worked out where I... Uh, Got a job with the Bucks, and over the last three seasons, I've been the director of basketball research uh, for the Bucks, which has uh, essentially been running the analytics department. Uh, certainly for the last two years, uh, the first year I was there, I kind of had a, a co-lead in, uh, a co-lead in, in uh, Mike Clutterbuck, who uh, was was the director of analytics, who kind of brought me on board. Um, and then uh, this summer, I um, for for a couple different reasons, I, I not to. Not to plug uh, right away, but to, to plug my uh, uh, why I joined the athletic piece, I talk about it a little bit there. But uh, kind of the focus of research with a team is, uh, well, it can be very directed, very focused on bottom line stuff. And for me, uh, kind of the process of more open-ended discovery is more stimulating at this point. Um, and that's just something that doesn't really work in a, in a, in a team environment, which is you know, all about application. Um, not to say that that application and communication and seeking for advantages isn't challenging and rewarding. It's just at this point in my life, I found I was much more um, motivated and enthused by uh, kind of the more open-ended work, and and so that's that's kind of the professional reason for the change. And then, and just uh, as as I'm sure people are, are probably aware, working in in professional like working for a team in professional sports is a 24 7 365 job and i have two young kids and i felt like i wasn't seeing them enough and so kind of uh, um not that not that covering the league is is the same as a nine to five but it's certainly from a uh being at work all the time uh situation certainly a downshift um so that i think kind of better balance on that front was uh kind of a co-factor in in the decision yeah, you know, it's funny because you and I have had discussions about working for a team before and like, you know, I've had offers like, you know, not like official offers or anything, but I've had discussions with teams about that before too. And you wrote something really interesting in your, uh, well, why I joined the athletic piece that I just found very intriguing. And it was just that, you know, you found that the desire to compete 
wasn't quite as high as the desire for discovery. Right. And I think that ultimately, like, that's a huge thing. Right. Like that is a huge part of being in the NBA. You really have to want to compete uh, to make your team and the guys that you work for better than the other teams versus just being able to, you know, look at the board as a whole and see what's going on. It helps to have the macro view, but ultimately I do think that in terms of like the power of balance, right, between the macro and the micro, you are looking more on the micro side just in terms of how I can help my team win when you're on the team side versus uh, when you're on the more national side, like I am and like you will be as you start to write articles for The Athletic and everything. It can just be a lot more rewarding and you can learn a lot more about where the league is going. Like I actually think that uh, there are some advantages to be had there in terms of uh, knowing a lot about the league from writers and analysts who cover the league day in, day out uh, on the public side versus people who are on the private side who have an incredible wealth of access to information that may not be available on the public side as much as, you know, we would hope, but are often so narrowly focused in terms of what they look at. Absolutely. I mean, I think there is your, you know, uh, I, I, in, but before joining the Bucks, I watched a range of sports and, and a range of teams and kind of the, the kind of those other, those other interests sort of uh, get paired away as your focus becomes kind of narrower and narrower. I, I'm, I'm a Red Sox fan, and uh, and I, I guess we won the World Series last year, but it was that was like right at the start of the basketball season. So, like I took notice of it, but it wasn't quite as a wasn't quite the same fan experience as it was, you know, when I uh, when I kind of had more mental bandwidth to to take that on. Um, and and similar point kind of one of the the experiences that had me kind of thinking about this was kind of uh, there's a uh, um uh, a friend of mine who works at uh, verily which is a google subsidy named kathy evans a uh, follower on twitter uh she does a lot of interesting basketball and football stuff um uh causal kathy uh is her twitter handle but she hosts a, a like a like a pre-sloan conference sports forum at, at at her office and this year because the NFL uh, kind of first is bringing out their their kind of version of tracking data this year, uh, a lot of the stuff that was being talked about was application of this this new football data, and there was a lot of really interesting stuff about quarterback decision making that had some fairly, I think, um, not I don't want to say straightforward, but some fairly. Uh, obvious connections to measuring kind of decision making in basketball and there were five or six people who ran analytics groups with nba teams in the room and we all kind of had similar questions and we almost started to have a a robust discussion about this and then we kind of all looked at each other and we're like no i can't do it and that was and it was that was immensely frustrating to me because this was something that was going to be really interesting and really kind of drive knowledge forward and these people are my friends and we would have had a fun discussion and then we couldn't have it because you know it's a zero-sum game and if i know something and you know something i haven't gained anything from that so i have to learn it first and that was uh, on some level pretty frustrating to me yeah no i think that that's a hundred percent right the desire for competition it kind of goes back to what i said earlier the desire for competition uh just so often overrides the uh the desire for communal learning in many ways and i think that often it just kind of holds back where we go and i think that it's why you know on many levels we do see a lot of the innovative stuff 
come from public sectors. Like, I think that there is a large reason why, you know, more NBA teams, more NFL teams, certainly more NHL teams, I can tell you that for a fact, do hire from the public sector. And it's because uh, it is, in a lot of ways, easier to prove your worth whenever you're in the public sector because you have a better chance to grow and learn as well as you have uh, just a wider range of things that you can actually write about and a wider range of uh, subjects that you can apply your knowledge to. I I wouldn't necessarily say a better uh, way, but a different way and kind of a combination of both is needed. Um, uh, I genuinely think that it is a better way because I think that it just leads to conversations with smart people that you can't have uh, publicly, like you said. Like, if you work for a team, it's really hard for you not to give away internal data. It's really hard for you not to, like, violate a non-disclosure agreement. So I think it's a lot harder to, like, really truly grow within a job. Oh, like uh, yeah. I, no, I, I see what you're saying. But it's also, you also do need kind of the hyper-focused specialists. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they're, they're, like, so there, there does need, the, having a mix of kind of the pure subject matter experts and kind of people with the broader range. And so, you know, having a mix of people who have kind of always come up through the sport and people who've taken the broader perspective. Um, But as someone who kind of came from the broader perspective, I, I I guess it's, it's safe to say I, I I missed that, that perspective. So uh, it's not, I don't don't want to like couch it as a better or worse thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a matter it's it's a matter of taste rather than than, a, than an objective right or wrong situation. Yeah, that's fair. It's probably fair. Um, so I, I guess that where we should go in this next conversation is I have one of the smartest, most intelligent you know people in the public sector now working. Uh, you know, let's talk about LeBron's kids and how to raise kids. <laughs> Seth. No, I'm kidding. Let's. Uh, uh, okay. No. I, no. I, I, Thank you, because as a father, anyone who has a problem with that is out of their mind. Oh, do you actually like, want to give a take on this? I was just no. That, 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 that's my t- that's joke. my take on it. Like as you know, that, like I, I have. What are we doing here? He's 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 in, enthusiastic for his his kid and his and his kids' teammates and like showing joy for that. And you know, beyond that, who cares? Like, what yeah. are, what are we doing here that we're that we're gonna that we're we're gonna police that like that's all that's all let's move on the the fact that this is like a three-day news story is bananas to me like if he wants to go and have fun at his kids games who the hell cares like i think there's probably a broader conversation to be had about like you know what like there is an awful lot of attention on brawny right now and i have some like vague slight concerns about how he will manage that going forward obviously he'll have his dad but you know every kid is different in the way he manages it but and i worry maybe a little bit that like lebron is like thrust not thrusting him into the limelight but i feel like there is more attention on Bronny because of lebron's actions but at the same time like i'm not going to sit here and tell him not to go wild when his kid's doing awesome shit you know what I mean? Like, parent the way you want to parent. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, we've talked about this too much already. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed by the people who are, who are kind of trying to make their bones off criticizing a, a guy for enthusiastically dadding, and that's all. 
Yeah, it's kind of crazy to me that that's a thing. Like, why would you go wild? Uh, why, why is this a three-day conversation? I don't know. We spent two minutes on it, and that's probably all we should spend on it. So I guess that where I wanted to go next with you is discussing just the general role of analytics in basketball and how you've seen it change over the course of your three years uh, on the team side uh, and the way that stats are used. So I will give you a broad kind of landing area <laughs> to just kind of give a give a give a starting point on, on where you want to go from this conversation oh man that's that's super open-ended and i'm not even i'm not even sure where to start um with that i mean i, I guess essentially it is uh, it's about context and and kind of a field of view um it, uh, obviously you you approaching you know especially with looking at the college game and translation to the nba uh, from a more uh, individual play level, you just before we were on the air, you were talking about how you were just kind of cleaning your computer from a bunch of synergy clips that you had downloaded uh, to kind of go through some film study of, of various players, and and you know uh, that's that that kind of micro level view is 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 pretty important uh, for for evaluating players, but also important is kind of having a more top level view of everything they've done. Now, with even with the the the, uh, the advent of tracking data, um, we're, we're not seeing the, the same kind of level of detail. You know, we can't. There are certain things tracking data just doesn't show us about. You know, players' ability to move in space and balance and stuff mm. like that. But it shows a lot of stuff about decision making and tendencies, and 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 how players perform over a large sample in in given scenarios, and so that field of view of being able to see all the games at once for everybody and compare them, um, I think that's a it's a that, that provides necessary context for kind of the more uh, the, the eye test view of okay this player the, the, okay I saw I watched him play and he hit. Uh, he hit uh, three of, of, of seven uh, pull-up threes with the guy in his face. Is that good? Like, yes, no. I mean, in, in a vacuum, you wouldn't know if that's good. But knowing how well everyone does in that situation and how that situation compares to all the other situations that can arise in a basketball game, um, having that context is kind of necessary to value what those skills you identify from a more, quote-unquote, eye-test-based basis are. I mean, anyone can can put up highlights. It's how good they are as a player is is you know okay. You've seen the five highlights. What about the fifty other possessions he played that game? How how did he impact the game? And so having the the more broad view uh, allows to us to see and hopefully value all of that, and not just get hung up in in kind of the highlights or the 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 bottom line box score stats. Yeah, you know, like as someone who does, you know, a lot of NBA draft stuff, I mean, maybe you could say mostly NBA draft stuff. Um, the thing that annoys me a lot whenever I talk about NBA draft prospects with even people on the team side is they'll go, yeah, but he shows flashes of this. He shows flashes of that. And I think flashes are important because for 19-year-old kids, they can show potential for skill development down the road. But, like, flashes aren't going to get you there whenever you get to the NBA. Like, being able to consistently perform possession by possession, game by game, even over the larger sample, is ultimately what's most important and most predictive of a player's talent level, right? And, like, one thing I'm looking at right now is, like, 
You know, so I had Trey Young at like seven on my draft board. I had him as like the top point guard. Like I'm not sitting here saying like I was wildly wrong about Trey Young, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday off air. But like, I do think that there was a modicum of underrating the fact that he was consistently dominant as a distributor and scorer at the college level. Like it wasn't just oh, he had, like, these multiple 40-point games, his average was, like, 28 points and 10 assists a game. Like, it was absurd. It's, well, I would, I, you know, I'll, I'll push back on you a little bit. I would say that, that, he, that he was misvalued in that he was described as much more of a scorer and much less of a, of a playmaker. Yeah, Cole, Cole and I really tried to push shown... back on that because, yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, we thought from the jump, like, oh, this guy is, like, an unreal passer. Like, that was his skill, was the ability to pass. Um, but, yeah, I agree with but you. He like, he was sold as the scorer, and that, that wasn't necessarily the case. And that was based in large part on, you know, he had a, a kind of the first month of the season when nothing else in the sports world was really going on. He had, a, he had a, like, a, like a hot month and had a bunch of 30-point games and, and, and hit a bunch of 28-footers. And, and then he, he's all of a sudden, he's being described as like a Steph Curry-level shooting prospect. And it's not, you know, if you look at the totality of his, of his body of work, it's not really what he, what he projected to be. And it's not really what he's, he's shown to be at the, you know, it's the extent that one season at the NBA level shows anything. That's not, that's not really what he's shown to be yet either. But if you get caught up in just like the highlights, yeah, he shoots a twenty-eight footer, it goes in. This guy, this guy's the next Steph. Whereas, okay, he's actually, you know, Steph was a was an all-time shooting prospect coming out of college, and Trey Young was a a pretty good shooter in college, and that's a that's a pretty big difference. Right. Like I think the people, I think that it was did Daryl Morey write about uh, in Michael Lewis's Undoing Project book that like. As soon as Stephen Curry got drafted and was successful, he saw an uptick in these like light-skinned, uh, you know, shoot-first guard types be overvalued by NBA teams, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, there's the the this, the similarity to to a thing that, to a the, the the superficial similarity to a thing that has come before. Though I will say that I think that part of the reason we're, we're also seeing. Um, an uptick in a certain style of player uh, that was kind of given permission to play that way by Steph's success. Like, I think that it's, I don't think it's an accident that, that Trey Young and now other players coming up have that kind of very aggressive deep pull up game. Now that, that Steph has shown that that can be a thing, um, but that, that's given people, you know, 14 year olds permission to try to play that way. Now that's maybe for, better and worse at kind of the lower levels, but for the, 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 the top talented players who figured out how to play that way, it's, it's naturally going to have sort of an influence on the style of, of the players coming into the game, coming into the NBA game. It definitely does have an influence on the style and it's a very difficult style for people who are like under 21 to play. If only because like I'm a big believer in physical strength and like conditioning and, all of that stuff playing a significant role in terms of shooting efficiency and shooting ability because it just, you know, ends up being that those guys be more consistent. I think guys that are stronger, guys that are more capable of like shooting out games, for instance. So I think that it is frustrating to watch those games from high school kids where like they pull up because they just aren't good enough shooters. 
because they aren't good enough. But I think it also like kind of helps them develop a little bit. Like it's it's like a huge catch twenty two because while so few of those guys I think are going to hit the level that they need to get to in terms of like being just pull up shooters from thirty feet, because realistically you probably have to hit those shots at what let's say thirty what is it probably thirty six percent something like that. Uh, 30, 35-ish, 34, 35, 36 is you're starting to. You're starting to get into to range where that's a that's a reasonable shot to have in your bag. Yeah, like I think it's going to be exceptionally difficult for people to get to that level. But if they do get to that level, it also is an incredibly valuable thing to have. So I, I don't really know how to legislate that within like the development of young basketball players. I think it's actually really really difficult to do. Well, and how was that? This is something that you know it came up a couple of years ago. I forget there was that some commentator was talking about how everyone's trying to be Steph, and I'm just trying to. And I'm I've always, I was wondering at the time, you know, how is that different than everyone trying to be MJ or Kobe and take like twisting turnaround fadeaways off, right. off of you know like four dribbles and a dream shake. I mean, it's you know everyone is going going to emulate the, the star player, and there's only a few star players, very few of them them are going to be good enough at it for it to not be kind of ugly um and so that's it's you know that's just that's just a fact most players aren't actually going to be good enough to do the things they try to do and and you know it's that's regardless of what those things are you're gonna you're there's gonna be like a, a passel of poor imitators yeah i think that's a good point it's just kind of difficult that i guess that the way to put this is We've seen mid-range jumpers throughout the history of basketball. We haven't seen 30-footers be taken regularly throughout the history of basketball. So I don't think we know how many... Like, I don't think we know what the population is of people who can get to a high level doing that. Like, right now, we're probably in the midst of kids coming up that are that have developed that shot enough to know how possible it is for kids to get to that like high level as a shooter you know what i mean yeah i think that's right and i I, and i do wonder also just like the prevalence of the nba line on courts um you know growing up i I never played on a a, a line you know on a court with the nba line and then having you know even just you know having played office pickup games in the nba line man the college and high school line seems seems short now and so just having people get the experience once they're physically capable of of shooting a real shot from that distance, just getting getting kind of used to that distance. I think that's that that's something that probably uh, you know adds to the development as well. Yeah. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about generally, and like this conversation can go forward into that, is just shot distribution as a whole. I think that that's something that you're pretty intently interested in figuring out right now. Right? Is what is what constitutes an efficient shot? Correct. Right. I mean the the and the the real the real answer is the most efficient shot is the is the shot the guy taking it can make. Um, now that's that's right. not a very satisfying answer. So there's sort of the general like the general kind of uh, uh, you know where we've generally landed of like layups, open threes, free throws. I mean those are empirically in today's NBA game and largely today's college game those are the the, the most efficient shots in the court. 
So you're, you know, it's not, it, it's not really preaching anything different. I mean, at every level of basketball, the coach talks about getting good shots. And that's just a, by looking at the data of, of, of hundreds of thousands of shots, these are the best, these are the ones that produce the best outcome. We can, we can fi- define the characteristics of the shots that, that like over time for kind of the quote unquote average shooter are best. Doesn't mean they're the best shot for everybody. And obviously there are times when you have to settle for a less than best shot because any shot is better than a, a shot clock violation. Um, but, you know, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to get good shots. What are good shots? Catch and shoot threes, layups, and trips to the foul line. Um, now, and, and but the other team knows you're trying to do that. So they're they're trying to prevent you from taking those shots and induce you to take other ones. And so it's that's this that's the strategic kind of contest of the game right there is is can we can we take good shots and make the other team take bad shots and then kind of over time the chips will fall where they may and we'll come out ahead so and i think that the idea that people haven't quite figured out yet is how to judge for contesting shots and how to figure out what is an efficient shot when a shot is contested versus uh what is an efficient shot when shots are uncontested because currently it's very difficult to judge individual defense and currently i think it's very difficult to judge uh contested i guess that like like the nba site in terms of like the stats site does have you know uh what is it it's like between zero and two feet three and five feet and then like wide open is like six and beyond right or maybe it's like zero and one two to four Five to yeah, it's, six, it's six uh, and two, two foot, yeah, the two foot bands, and um, uh, it's unfor- I think it's unfortunate that they that the the, the league stat site has has uh, kind of gone one size fits all, because kind of how the effect of defensive proximity on a shot at the basket and a three pointer are very different. Um, so really, yeah, to contest a shot at the basket, you've got to be you know probably within about two feet of a guy. You can give some pressure if you're two to four feet and then anything beyond that it's basically an open you know it's basically an open layup um whereas you know just by nature of kind of a jump shot versus a layup you can put more pressure on a guy from further away in terms of of bothering altering uh, decreasing the percentage of a shot so really uh i've kind of i actually think that uh that uh that, that six feet is kind of the the break-even point between a shot being uh, NBA open and not. Um, if you look at that, that's kind of where shots from beyond with the defense farther away from that that line are are made at an above league average rate and from below that distance are a below average rate. Uh, and very few three-pointers are taken with the defense like within within two feet. And, and so um, uh, to I guess to, to continue the, the discussion, um, uh, the analysis of shot defense like omits an important thing if you're just focusing on percentage is the kinds of things that'll make a shot less accurate being closer to the guy when he's going to shoot also make him just not shoot. So if you're focusing on, on the percentage that a guy is shooting on jump shots when you're defending, you're missing a really important part of, of Denial. what defense is. Denial, exactly. Yeah. Like deterrence. Um, you know, it, it's at the rim... For the most part, you could be you could be you know you could be DJ Augustine in the paint, and it's and with with uh, with Rudy Gobert contesting you, and it's hard even hard in that situation for it to be that bad an idea to shoot at the rim because you might get fouled. You're still going to make it, and, and 
you know, probably even the worst NBA finishers are going to make that shot in the in the 40s. So it's a it, it's hard for it to be that bad. So if you're at the rim, it's usually a good idea to shoot. Whereas if you're you know on the perimeter and you catch the ball and the guys draped all over you, it's a terrible idea to shoot. Um, and so that changes kind of the the dynamics of what what it, what it means to properly contest a shot. If an NBA player catches the ball on the perimeter and shoots, you probably weren't close enough because they are good enough at making those decisions that if they catch it and they feel they are open enough to shoot, they were probably open enough to shoot. Right. Right. No, that's a really good way to put it. And I think that, uh, you know, a big thing to understand over the macro is like there's always this discussion about mid-range shots, right? Uh, Right. In the regular season just because the level of defenses are at like teams play defense i'm not going to sit here and say like the college basketball fan point of view nba teams don't play defense but like there is like a level that defense goes up in the playoffs right would you i would assume you agree with that, I, right? yes I, I it's there's there's part of that that's sort of an intensity thing but there's also um you know 82 games there's scouts playing three or four games a week yeah it's it's you know you have general tendencies but if you're preparing for the same team seven times all right in this situation he's going to take two dribbles left cross over between his legs and pull up right uh, it's you can it's get, harder like, to score that, that, in like, the it's not that extreme it's not right. that extreme but you know guys tend to oh yeah you can you can you can take away you know you can take away first and second options not just of, of for where the offense wants to go but you can like sit on a guy's favorite move because you've had time to really dial in on just that guy um, and that's not really something that, that's really that possible to do over the course of a season. So defense becomes better both because the intensity picks up, also better players are playing more, but oh, I think most importantly because of the, the level of, of kind of scouting and preparation. Yeah, and I think that that's where having guys that are three-level scorers and thus can score in the mid-range is most important because – Often, a team is going to try and shut down first, shots at the basket, second, uh, catch and shoot threes, and then third, they're going to make sure and try and shut down a ball handler's tendencies, right? Like, I, I would say that those are those are the keys here, right? In general, I, everything's going to be different, but I think, like, you're trying to do that most of the time. Probably that's right, yeah. Um, but, and I, I don't think, by the way, I don't think that that's, that's totally changed very much much over the years i mean one of the right. um this is this is sort of a this is uh this is something that i've that i've been harping on literally for years um is that that you know the shots that that like people say the lost out of the mid-range like the, the mid-range shots that have become three-pointers are not the guy the, the the star ball handler with the ball breaking his guy down and pulling up from the elbow that's stayed pretty constant over the last 15 or 20 years. Like the shots you're talking about, like you have to, you have to get when the defense is taking away your first, second and third options, like the same guys are taking those shots in, in roughly the same volume. What's gone away is the, the kind of the dependent score the guy who's catching and shooting. He's no longer taking a 17 footer from the baseline. He's taking a corner three. And those are the shots that have have been replaced by the three pointer. So it's not, uh, so again, I think the, the, the idea that that like the, the mid range game is dead is is uh, I, well, it's always I just, been a fallacy. Yeah, I think it's always been a fallacy because again, it's it's it, like the the shots that have gone away are the shots that no one really cared about, and like C J McCollum getting to the elbow and operating, you know, that's 
that's the same shots guy like the the high usage guys were taking you know in in 1995 and 2005 and now in 2019 and you know now maybe with with you know Steph and Dame and Trey Young and whoever else now backing up and instead of operating and getting to the elbow and pulling up they're operating and you know pulling up from 27 feet maybe some of those shots will start to move back too but uh, but you know that's that, that's still it's a relatively uh, a relatively small number of players that that have really added that at a uh, at a level that is re- requiring of defensive adjustment I'll say yeah no I agree with that I, I think that what people need to understand is that whenever we talk about shot distribution on the grand scale it is exactly that like we want catch and shoot threes we want shots at the rim we want uh shots within you know let's say five feet or whatever uh yeah we don't want we don't want shots from 20 to 23 feet um the the reason that i bring this up is like generally speaking we can kind of narrow down like what an efficient shot is from the mid-range right uh generally speaking the average half court possession nets somewhere between let's say 0.93 and like 0.99 for good teams points per possession right uh, i think it's a little bit higher than that now especially if you factor in offensive rebounding but yeah it's that it's it's in that area um yeah like, it, like maybe a couple teams cracked one this year um i in, in half court I, I would guess that this year since overall efficiency hit one one point one ish this year um i I, th- I would say that that probably the the not having in front of me in the half court i would guess that 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 several teams probably hit hit a, a point or more per possession yeah yeah but that's I'll, you know but I'll but it's, i mean the exact number doesn't totally matter no like in general though the point here is that you want to get as close to that number if you are late in the shot clock or something like that is possible, right? And ultimately, right. that's where a lot of mid-range shots happen. What I think has been excised from the star-level mid-range jumper is the, like, 18 seconds left on the shot clock mid-range jumper. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like I think the, that yeah. has gone away. The the pull-up two in transition is, is, you know, it's just a, you know, it's a, um, it's just a bad shot. Like, you know, you, you're in an advantageous possession situation and you're taking a shot that even if you're the best in the world at it, even if you're Kevin Durant, it's maybe worth, you know, a little over a point of possession in a situation where, you know, the average transition possession is probably about, you know, well, you know, in the 1.3 to 1.4 range. So you're just, you know, yep. you know, obviously like 0.2 points or point uh, like 0.2 or three points doesn't sound like a lot, but you, you aggregate that at over 82 games like that's that's a that's 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 several wins over the course of the season if you yeah, just say, like, like take that shot out and, and you aggregate it you ag- like you aggregate it out of a let's say what teams are now at like 100 possessions a game something like that uh let's say that 20 percent of them are in transition so you're talking about 80 possessions you're still talking about let's say like a three-point difference per you know, maybe two to three points over the course of a single game. And like that stuff really adds up even just over the course of a game. Yeah, no, I mean, you, 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 I mean, if you, if you have something where the effect is that big a magnitude, like two to three points, that's, that's, you know, six to 10 wins a season. That's a massive difference. Right. Um, so here, four teams were up over one point per 100 
or one point per possession this year in the half court. Uh, it was unsurprisingly the Warriors, Bucks, and Rockets, given how good their offenses are. The fourth team, can, I'll give you a chance here. Can you name who the fourth team was that was up over a point um, per half court possession? San Antonio. Yes. Why did, did you win? say San Antonio? Yes. Because uh, I know they, I, I just knew they shot the crap out of it from three this year. And they don't, and they don't fast break very much. And they don't turn the ball over very much. But it's interesting because they also have the most mid-range heavy offense in the league. Well, that so they actually they demonstrate like like one of those little little quirks of the game that that you that that, that illustrate why everything matters. Uh, so their two most you know biggest culprits of shooting mid rangers are Demar Derozan and players. Marcus Aldridge. Yes, right. But those are also two of the players who are excel in terms of getting up a high volume of shots without turning the ball over very much. So, right. And yes, also kind of, being able to make them at a high enough clip to where yes. it's not hyper inefficient. I mean, th- those aren't those aren't like they're not getting great shots, but they're getting more of them. So, right. That, that, that kind of, uh, it, it, you know, in, in some ways, that kind of uh, that mid range heavy not have to get into the paint and create where you could get a charge, could turn the ball over. I mean, you could throw the ball out of bounds. You could get stripped, whatever. Um, and just and pulling up like at least you got a shot. Um, so that that in some ways, guys who are proficient from the mid range also help you because they make sure you get a shot. And then if you, you know, for teams that do that, if you have some proficiency on the offensive glass, then you know you you've, you you can almost in you know to use a hockey term, you can dump and chase a little bit. If you you get a shot up on the board, and then you have a a monster rebounder. Not that San Antonio was a monster offensive rebounding team, but these like just getting a shot up. Um, gives you the chance that an offensive rebound as well and those are those those can be extremely high value possessions if you obviously if you get an offensive rebound you're probably pretty close to the basket already with the ball so you we bring up DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge I don't know the exact numbers for LaMarcus I know that DeRozan was right around like 45 46 percent this year from mid-range I want to say it was like 40 maybe 44 45 so the reason that I think people say that the mid-range is a bad thing, right? Is that, so you look this year, there were something like 45 players who put up at least 200 mid-range attempts throughout the entire year. Only 12 of those guys made shots at at least a 45% clip from mid-range, which is like the lowest bound in terms of like where teams are in terms of half-court offense. The Knicks finished last this year uh, in half-court offense at 0.905 points per per possession. So they were like 90 points per 100 half-court possessions. Only 12 players in the league made those mid-range two-point shots, even at like the lowest bound of the league. I think that that goes to demonstrate how difficult it is to be efficient on those shots and how high the standard is on those shots because it's just so in- it's so difficult to be efficient at them. Like not everyone is Kevin Durant knocking down 55% of them. Like most of the time you're probably going to be Colin Sexton knocking down 39% of them. Right. And it, and, but again, like sometimes that's what you end up with and being right. Better at that is better than being worse, but that's not, that's not your goal. That's if that's your, you know, say DeMar DeRozan, of uh, uh, you know 45 percent for mid-range if that's your floor on a possession that's pretty good if that's your ceiling on a possession that's pretty terrible and so that's where it's you know if you're 
if if you do that when all else fails, you're in good shape. If you're looking for that, your 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 aim is not high enough. Right, and, and like look, like you said, like there are possessions where teams are going to take away your second, third, fourth option, and you end up with Demar Derozan at the top of the key, or even let's say let's say someone that's worse than Demar. Let's say. Um, Let's say Lou Williams. Lou Williams made 37% of his mid-range jumpers this year. There are still going to be circumstances where Lou Williams at 37%, if there's five seconds left on the shot clock, and you know for a fact that he can get that mid-range shot at 37%, there are probably a few circumstances where that's your best shot. That's, you know, that's 37% higher than 0%. Again, it's like, you know, it's, there, there aren't many, it's not, it's rarely that stark, but, but that's, you know, it's at a certain point, like, getting any shot up is better than just, you know, letting the ref, letting the buzzer go off and handing the ball to the ref is, is, is kind of the alternative at a certain point. Okay. So I have two topics I want to get to the sure. rest of this podcast. So the sure. first one is going to be what players reputations around the league do you think are most misjudged either positively or negatively? Um, are you talking about like, in what player general, do you think kind of in the public discussion? Right in the public discussion, what player? What players do you think are generally seen as you know good or elite or fine that are just a level below that? Or it can be the opposite way. Like, what players do you think are seen as just fine that are actually like fucking amazing? Hmm. Uh, you know, I, is this the part where I? This is, is this the part where I I, I I come out as being not a Russ West. Brooke guy, yeah, it's probably that's. I think that's the you know, and and at risk of being called a hater, because of course I will. Like this, he's saying he's. I don't think he's a top five player. I think he's a top fifteen or twenty player. Um, I think that's probably where consensus is now on Russ, like top fifteen, right? I don't know. I think that that not having him in the you know the, the true superstar category is is you know he's a he's a guy who's an all star every year probably. But so maybe maybe even top twenty is probably maybe even a little little higher than I would have than I would have him in my kind of internal rankings. Um, but I think that again, it's uh, a guy who puts up immense counting stats because he is as ball dominant a player as you've ever seen in the NBA. Like um, there there's certain there's certain ranges of skills that uh, I think uh, um, uh, a, a, par- a term I've heard come into more use kind of in the last year is talking about a guy who's a floor raiser versus ceiling raiser. And yeah, like there's, there's certain guys who can soak a lot of possessions and they'll be okay. And that's the kind of guy who will, you know, you, you'll, you'll be at a certain level. Like you're never going to win just, you're never going to win 20 games. If you have this guy on your team, he's going to get you past that level, but can he get you from 40 to 60 wins? Can he get you to, uh, can, can your team be a real threat? to be second, third, fourth round of the playoffs if that's the, the basis of your team. Um, and that, and that, so that guy's your best player in this scenario. With yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's, that's you know, I, I think as he, as his game has developed post-Durant. Now this year will obviously be a, a very interesting test uh, for him in terms of how he and Harden, who are um, two of the three, three or five most ball-dominant players in the league last year, like how that actually works together, and if there's a way that they can be complementary in a way that 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 Harden and Chris Paul never totally managed, despite actually being pretty good. Um, 
they're like they're just the overall talent got them to a certain level, but I'm not sure there was ever great synergy there. Um, so I think that's the that's the the obvious answer on the on the high side. On the low side, man, that's tough. Um, I don't know someone like Rudy Gobert probably. Um, I think that that you know you have you have that dominant a paint presence. You have a top ten defense. Period. And that's a pretty good place to build from. And then, like, his offensive limitations, it seems like he's getting blamed for, in the past, the, you know, if you're looking for your center for shot creation, um, you probably have problems. <laughs> and, and so, but, but somehow the Jazz's offensive, like, shortcomings, especially in the postseason, have been placed on him more than, than they should have been when really, like, again... He's your defensive anchor center. He's there to, you know, catch 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 lobs as a pick and roll dive man and offensive rebounds. And and if he gives you that and like the the you know the, the defensive player of the year level interior defense, like what more do you want from him? Uh, but somehow because he's not a he's not a primary scorer offensively, he gets and they they kind of didn't have much shot creation last year beyond Donovan Mitchell. Right, like he gets blamed for that. Uh, which I don't think is totally, and then I guess the other one that I don't, I'm not sure people realize just how good he is yet is, is Nikola Jokic, um, who is I think like comfortably a top ten player in the league, despite you know doing it in what are visibly unorthodox ways. Yeah, I think I had him at tenth. It's like him, him and him and Joel Embiid are like nine and ten for me. I think. That's the, like, that is that is the uh, enduring debate of our age is which would you rather have between those two? Oh, I, I mean, as an asset, I would probably take Jokic if only because of the Joel injury stuff. Uh, well, I, but on the court, I, I think it gets I, a little bit more complicated. I, I, no, I see where you're going with that, but if you're aiming for like if you're aiming for the championship, doesn't like the fact that I think that that Joel has like. The injury stuff maybe makes his kind of median value uh, less, but in terms of the, the just his 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 size and superior athleticism maybe makes his 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 reasonable peak higher. So you think about winning like winning playoff series and having the best guy in that situation. Like Embiid probably has a better chance of being that. So maybe maybe you trade some like average value for peak value. Maybe you'd prefer it that way. So I, it's not question. really an answerable uh, question. Yeah, I was going to say, because I think there's also just like a real chance that Joel's like offensive IQ in terms of turning the ball over and taking really bad shots at times uh, might just never get to that level. Like th- that's still a thing that's plaguing him. That's fair. So I like I, put it yeah, this way, like. I think there's a real reason why Nikola Jokic, I believe, has now gone as far as Joel Embiid in the playoffs already. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the, the, the you know, there's there's a ball bouncing four times difference between between that not being true or not. So true, know. absolutely <laughs> true. And like, there's a whole idea also that like the pieces fit around Jokic much better than they fit around Joel Embiid, but. You know. Also, I think it's unquestionable that Embiid over the last two years has had better talent than Jokic has had. So, and Jokic did make the playoffs in year one of this sample, but it's it's a complicated question. And like you said, I do think it's kind of unanswerable because I don't. I also think both of these guys are going to get better from where they are now. 
Yeah, no, and they're both and and kind of that, and it's also one of those questions that's almost like who's better, who cares? Like it right. matters. Agreed. It matters so much else, like like the context they're playing in to which one's going to be more effective. That's that's close enough, and like as a you know, as a practical matter, that, that's never ever going to be anyone's decision. Have to make like a a force rank between the two decision. So those are the kinds of things that I think we spend way too much time talking about anyway. Um, the only reason uh, that I think they get talked about as much as they do is because it now does affect money. Like there's a circumstance where ooh. at some point, let's say Carl Towns and D'Angelo or uh, DeAndre Ayton just have like monster 25, 28 in 13 seasons and get named first and second team all NBA. Then you legitimately have to figure out, uh, okay, third team all NBA, Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid. You know, well, who had who had the better season and who is better are not the same questions. And I like that. That's, that's a whole other point. like, and that and and the the idea of kind of uh, like outside voted awards uh, um, deciding compensate like directly deciding compensation as opposed to just uh, influencing it is a whole other can of worms. Which you know, I don't I don't even think we we have time to get into. Um, right. But <laughs> so let's let's go to the second like the last thing I want to talk to you about basically is. You are someone like me that will go outside of basketball to try and learn about basketball. Like I, you, I yeah. think that's like, honestly, one of the things that like you and I like really connect on is like, we try and like talk about like the way different sports are doing it. And we try and reach out to a lot of different sources to try and find uh, knowledge. So like for me, like baseball, the way that baseball uh, values prospects, the way that baseball uh, has found a way to get like monetary value in terms of how much player is worth, like how much a pick is worth. Like this, this is stuff that I constantly think about and try and figure out. Um, what are some of the coolest things that you feel like you've learned uh, by looking at other sports and applying so them to basketball? That is, yeah, no. So it, it, it basket, basketball is kind of is kind of interesting because it's sort of the. Uh, it's sort of in between the very kind of discrete sports like uh, stop sport, start sports like uh, uh, baseball and American football and on one end as very discrete sports and then it, like completely flow-based sports like hockey and soccer on the other end. So I think there's things that can be taken from both. Now, at present, more of the technique has been derived from baseball, mostly for better, but sometimes for worse. Uh, for example, the thing we talked about earlier with the kind of the shot deterrence factoring into defense, like that's something that you just don't you, just, you kind of don't even think about if you're coming from a, a baseball perspective, because you know baseball perspective is, is okay. You're up to plate. You're either safe or you're out, and that's all that can happen. You can't pass. You can't. No, I'll wait. And and right. so just like. In, like the batting, the difference between having a batting order and not, and you don't have it's not a game of lightning where you shoot in the same order every time. Like you can have, you can affect who shoots when in basketball, and that's a that's a huge fundamental difference that uh, um, kind of changes many of the, the assumptions that underpin baseball analysis. So, but mostly for better. I mean, looking at things on a possession basis, on a rate basis. Um, uh, ha, ha, has been very useful to basketball. But then looking at it from the other way, uh, uh, there's been some really interesting stuff coming out of uh, uh, 
uh, soccer in terms of I, I, the, the the most interesting thing I saw at the Sloan Conference last year was a uh, presentation by uh, Javi Fernandez from uh, from Barcelona FC about how they're kind of uh, layering in different kinds of, of values in terms of uh, measuring decision making with the ball, off the ball, uh, defensively, uh, in terms of movement and, and pass selection and stuff like that on the soccer field. And so being able to really value kind of the the micro actions that players take on the court like how valuable is the screen how valuable is 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 slipping a screen how valuable is it is a player who is really good at stunting at a shooter and getting back to his guy like these are i don't think we're very we're close to answering these questions yet but it's it's kind of showing the way that that you might address some of these so to be able to identify the value of things that we know as observers of basketball we know or at least suspect are important and valuable in the play of the game and to really be able to evaluate those holistically and i think that has huge uh, potential for especially in improving our understanding of basketball and the defensive side of the ball where everything now is kind of almost taking as the inverse of the offensive side and i don't really think that's the right way to look at defense because it's not you know, I'm guarding you, it's we're guarding you. And so yeah. figuring out how everyone fits into that is requires almost a different frame of thought that we haven't we haven't really invented the language to decide that to this discuss to decode that yet. Um, there's not we'll, a single get there, but there's not a single defensive stat that I find like super, super useful right now. Outside of like maybe like rim protection numbers. Uh, like what what percentage do you allow at the basket? Like I think those can be like somewhat informative for people who put up large numbers of contested shots at the basket. Um, but like it's hard right now to find anything that I think is valuable defensively that isn't like a base level uh, deflections number or uh, you know steals blocks etc. You know and like steals and blocks really aren't all that indicative either. I think I mean there are some that are kind of very top-down metrics. Um, uh, the, um, there's, uh, I believe his name is Ryan Davis on Twitter has a website called NBAShotCharts.com that has a that has a measure that that he calls uh, that this is going to be a mouthful, but it's called a luck adjusted regularized adjusted plus minus. So what that basically means is uh, like accounting for how the players impact uh, while trying to strip out kind of the make or miss variance of short sample sizes. And depending on with who's playing with him and against him, and you look at the side of that over multi-year samples, and that starts to tell you something about who is impactful defensively. Now, that doesn't that doesn't really help you with the why they're impactful, but it will help you uh, kind of see guys uh, where guys actually are defensively, give you some idea, and also if they're kind of especially as players age, uh, defensive reputations can be pretty sticky, and so you can kind yeah. of start to see. Uh, a guy, de- a de- guy declining before he necessarily is is seen as having done so in the public eye. So that's like uh, that's that's kind of maybe perhaps hyper technical, but that's at least give you a, a baseline of of good things tend to happen defensively with this guy on the court. Um, and that's again, you, you're you're looking at like what does he do to do that? I don't know. Um, uh, that's where you have like, to watch you tape mentioned and figure it out. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's a uh, that that and that's I um. I think that's actually a better stat than like the the. It's a similar stat to uh, ESPN's real plus minus. I think that there's 
the effect of of, uh, of kind of counting stats on real plus on defensive real plus minus are perhaps too strong. So they tend to value like you know they tend to value the guys who block shots and get rebounds while not actually playing that great defense. And I think mm-hmm. I don't we, we can think of who those players might be uh, while undervaluing guys who play good defense without getting a lot of steals, like Clay Thompson, for example. Do you do you want to go into Draymond? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, it, um, um, so the, 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 thing, the thing that is, frustrated me was that like no, the logic I, you know, doesn't I, seem there for me. From like for like people who like watch basketball constantly, like the logic inputs don't seem anything beyond just like oh, this is the most basic idea of what basketball is. Uh, no, I think that's right, and I think that like you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. Like if you're defending shots at the rim, looking at opposing field goal percentage can tell you, tell you some things. Again, we talked about it a little bit earlier. If you're near the rim, almost doesn't matter how much defensive pressure you're under. Go ahead and shoot it. Um, right. And where, but that's not really the case away from the rim. And you know, at Nylon Calculus, we looked at this a while ago, and and it, it like it made some sense at the rim. And then when the further away we got from the rim, like assigning credit for makes and misses to the nearest defenders kind of stopped making sense. And that's, that's sort of the basis for that metric. And it, and it ends up looking okay because the most consistent part of it is the, the rim protection part. And so the guys who are good rim protectors tend to show up as tend to show up well on the model, but that doesn't make the overall model. I don't think especially satisfying, but this is, this is that specifically something that I plan on writing about at some point in I would I would hope over the summer Seth do you have any other exciting things that you want to talk about any anything uh, anything strong that you have to say any anything you got to get off your chest before I am very excited for Hobbs and Shaw um, oh my god I'm going to see it tomorrow night <laughs> I have to I think I have to wait a week but uh, I think we're we're we're, uh, we're I'm very excited to, to, to go see it I, I don't know did you see that, uh, that that our colleagues Zach Harper got to go to the premiere very jealous I am unsurprised that Zach figured out his way into yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, if there's one thing that Zach would focus his considerable gifts upon, it would be figuring out a way out here in LA to go to the Hobbs and Shaw premiere. Um, right. Yeah. I'm thrilled. So we go to, there's like an art house theater kind of thing out here. Like not really an art house theater, but they get a lot of like artsy movies and the people that tend to go to this theater, it's like an adults only theater. And the people who tend to go to this theater are more like super heavy, like, you know, movie people. It's probably honestly, like a, I would imagine a large portion of them work in Hollywood, given that I live right in the middle of Hollywood and this theater is right in the middle of Hollywood. Uh, the like seating chart for AMC stubs for like once upon a time in Hollywood, we got that like a week in advance there. We got like the last two seats in the middle of the theater, basically. Uh, all of like the second section, like the higher section of the theater was taken. You can do that with like a bunch of movies, like Midsummer. even is like a movie that people like in the middle of the country. I feel like probably don't know what that is, but like we got tickets to that five or six days out and the theater. What are was, you like, saying about people in the middle of the country, Sam? Uh, are, 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 are you, are you, are you I'm saying, saying more, 
honestly, no, I'm saying more that like, <laughs> I, I'm not making fun of people in the middle of the country. I'm saying that distribution platforms for a movie like Midsummer tend to be on the coast. Oh, okay. Than anything. Okay. All right. I was uh, just like, as a, as a proud Midwesterner, I was going to take, you know, take, take you're, umbrage. You're a three year Midwesterner. I've been more was, of a Midwesterner than you have. I lived in Minnesota for 10 years. So I, they, I, I that, anyway, that's right. Uh, but like everything for Midsummer was like sold out, basically. We did tickets yesterday for Hobbs and Shaw. There are fucking three people in this theater for like the Thursday night opening of Hobbs and Shaw. So I'm going to be what? fascinated to see like if they're like I'm in the middle of L.A., like in the middle of Hollywood at this theater. I'm going to be fascinated to see if there are more if there are more people at Midsummer or more people at Hobbs and Shaw. That's that. Uh, what 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 is wrong with you, LA? If that's if that's true, there will be <laughs> people. Gr- people will go to like uh, City Walk at Universal City, or they'll go to like Century City or wherever to go see Hobson Shaw. I've found the perfect little theater to go see my big release movies and thoroughly enjoy them with a crowd that is like half full. <laughs> okay, fair enough. This is this is the dream. What are what are you most excited for with Hobson Shaw? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I think the, the, um, uh, I, is, is there one thing? I don't know. I've, I'm actually, I'm most, in, most enthused for how they get us to the point where, I don't know if you saw, it came out this week that one of the producers of Fast and Furious wouldn't rule out the series going to space. And now yes. we're talking. Uh, well, they literally made Idris Elba, like, alien Superman, so, like, apparently based off of the trailers. So, Yes, I am thrilled to see how they figure out how to just make these movies more absurd. I will say that 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 was that putting him in the trailer the way they did um, made made selling going to see that movie with my wife much easier. He took the helmet off, <laughs> and she's like, "Yes, we can see that." Yes, we're good. We are very good right now. Yeah. Um, did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I have not yet. Uh, gotta go see it. It is. It, it's a. It, I guess like. It works on so many different levels. The last 30 minutes of it are just perfect, and that's all I'll say. But uh, as a movie nerd also, it's just spectacular. It's so good. I have a, I have a confession that I haven't seen a Tarantino movie since Inglourious Bastards. So what? You missed Django and you missed Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight, yeah. I, I, I think I've seen, I've probably seen most of Django in, in parts but I haven't, I haven't watched the whole thing through. Um, that's mostly, like, we were talking earlier about, like, narrowing a focus. Like, in the last couple of years, I just haven't had time to watch a lot of movies. Right. Um, so, uh, I, like, I, I feel like I've missed things. I would say Hateful Eight is probably his worst movie, to be honest. Okay. Um, and I would say Django is, like, somewhere in the middle. I would say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is better than both of them. Okay. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Noted. is, like, so, like, I think that his best two movies are, like, very clearly Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. I think, like, both of those movies are, like, among the best movies of their decade. Like, somewhere in, like, the top five to ten movies of their decade. Uh, I, will, I will stand for Jackie Brown, but, uh, but, but I, I, I hear where you're coming from. Right. And what I was going to say is, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, like, in that next tier down, like, with Jackie okay. Brown and Reservoir Dogs. Like, it's, okay. it stands up very well with those. It's, it's interesting that you don't have Kill Bill anywhere in there. Kill Bill for me is, it's. I think that the way they had to split it created some interesting narrative choices. 
that he had to make and made it sometimes a strange watch for me. Like, I go back and forth on which Kill Bill I think is better because I think that there are flaws in both of them. Like, I found the audacity to put, like, a six-minute, like, anime cartoon in the first Kill Bill to be just, like, hilarious, but also kind of not what I was... Kind of not what I, actually I wanted from a choice. That scene was actually super disturbing to me. Like, yeah, I, 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 like, I, I didn't really want that as a narrative that's choice, why I, I guess. Yeah. Uh, no, it was. I mean, it, like, I guess it was effective, but it was like super. As a viewer, it was. It was like it. It was. It was disquieting. <laughs> um, so yeah, like there, th- there were just some random Kill Bill things that I think were a little bit frustrating for me. Like, I love the, I love the narrative device of him putting uh, Oren Ishii crossed out at the top, like before the entire movie happens. Basically, like that part was super interesting to me. But and like how he gets to that, or how uh, the bride gets to that point. But, uh, yeah, just from, like, a pacing perspective, from an editing perspective, there were some things that annoyed me a little bit. Like, I would say Kill Bill is, like, sixth, and Kill Bill is still probably one of the 15 best movies the year that it came out. (laughs) Seth, do you want to plug some stuff? You have some stuff coming up here. Uh, let me see. I think the main thing, uh, they're kind of easing in on the writing side, I think starting um, tomorrow, I'm going to be doing a, a regular podcast uh, on The Athletic with uh, Dave Dufour and a cast of thousands. Um, so I guess uh, I guess look for that. Um, um, but yeah, uh, that's, that's the main thing. And then obviously I'll be, uh, be writing, as we get up and running, I'll be writing regularly at The Athletic. Um, there's a, if, I can, if we can do some commerce here, there's a... Uh, we have a promo code for forty uh, percent off uh, first year subscription. Uh, theathletic.com uh, slash welcome set. Uh, my first vanity URL. I'm very excited. I love that. Isn't Nylon Calculus just a vanity URL for you? Uh, that was actually not my. That was not my. My. Uh, I'll be honest. My pitch for the name of that site was the mid range theory because you know, I'm a, a, yeah, it's an homage to tribe called tribe called. Qu- but I, uh, but nylon calculus grew up on me over the years. Go to the athletic. Go subscribe to the athletic. You can use Seth's uh, promo code if you're looking for forty percent off. Uh, I'll be writing about what I screwed up in the 2018 NBA draft at some point coming up here, uh, and then I'm going to do a couple of other interesting little stories uh, about the NBA going forward here. So keep it locked on the athletic. Uh, go follow Seth. He'll be tweeting a lot more now. How excited are you to get to tweet now? I mean, I think it showed. <laughs> I think I, went, I think over the last couple of days, I've gone on a little bit of a binge. My fingers are kind of are kind of worn out from it, but uh, I'll, I'll I'll get through it. I'll I'll, I'll fight through. Yeah, you, your uh, your wife Maya seemed very uh, very interested by how your NBA Twitter experience is going to go. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I. Uh, We'll be back later on next week, but until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.